This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus 17. This past Wednesday was not just another Wednesday. It was Texas Independence Day. Each March 2nd, we remember that day from 1836, where delegates from across Texas met and declared independence from Mexico under the name the Republic of Texas. While those meetings were happening at Washington on the Brazos, there was a story-shaping, nation-making battle underway at a mission in San Antonio. In his book, The Blood of Heroes, author James Donovan describes it like this. The Mexican army, thousands of soldiers strong, attacked a makeshift garrison of about 200 Texas settlers. Among them, and now these are three very important names of Texas history. How many of you had Texas history in eighth grade? How many of you, okay, let's just back up. How many of you were uh, most fortunate to be born in the great Republic of Texas? Just a few of you. And how many of you were born outside of these sacred soils? We are so glad you're here. We built this for you. All right, so um, I'm about to drop three very important names in Texas history. That's why the, I needed to see who we're talking to. So uh, do you know the name Davy Crockett, James Bowie, William B. Travis? They're all there, okay? Back to the story. The Texans refused to surrender, fighting valiantly for their lives and for a free and independent Texas. For almost two weeks, the immense force laid siege on the fort, bombarding its occupants with constant military fire. Then, in the early hours of March 6th, the Mexican troops unleashed a final devastating assault. What happened next would become legend. And legend it would become. While the Alamo fell that day under the weight of Santa Ana's force, what happened there rallied people from all around Texas to forge together and fight for independence. Their battle cry became... Remember the Alamo. From that day on, they, they quoted that slogan to both friends and foe as to not forget the bravery and sacrifice that Texans demonstrated in becoming free. I've been hearing the story of the Alamo as long as I can remember. I also remember as a boy hearing vivid stories of the Israelites in battle. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Gideon and his trumpet-blasting army and their victory over the Midianites. David defeating the dreaded Philistines. Well, the passage we arrive at today is the very first battle of many to come in the life of Israel after God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. As the Exodus generation pioneered through the desert, this makeshift band of former slaves who had never faced war, walked headfirst into their own story-shaping, nation-making battle. Now, there were also brave and mighty men who fought in this battle to defend Israel. 
But when the dust settles, it's not their names or their bravery that are remembered. No one is saying, remember Moses, or remember Joshua, or they're still at Rephidim. No one's pointing back saying, remember Rephidim. But the chorus of the saved say, remember the Lord. Because the Lord alone fought this battle on behalf of His people. What battles have you fought that have taught you to remember the Lord? What battles have you fought that have taught you to remember the Lord? We've seen Yahweh provide for and protect His people at every turn through the wilderness as He's led them by His presence. And with every step, He's teaching them to trust in Him. When the Israelites stood on the banks of the Red Sea, they were told, wait in silence and see the salvation of God. Now they stand in the danger of the desert and they are told to fight looking to the salvation of God. This is a different thing. The story is recorded here in the pages of Holy Scripture and passed down from generation to generation to teach that God's people did not and do not fight in their own strength, but continually depend on the Lord in every battle. So as we witness this war together, we'll notice that instead of praise going to any man, every ounce of glory goes to the God who redeemed them. So I want to outline this text showing just how God-centered this passage is. Okay, And so even the, the points will highlight three truths that this scene teaches us about who our God is. He is the Lord, who, uh, the Lord of every step, the Lord of every battle, and the Lord of every victory. Let me invite you, if you would, to stand to your feet once more for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Exodus 17, 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, and so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Who is our God? Well, first, He is the Lord of every step, verses 8 through 10. These opening verses take us into new territory for the children of God, the battlefield. 
And at the beginning of the story, we're introduced to a few new people for the first time in our study of the book of Exodus. The first introduction is to a notorious group of desert pirates called the Amalekites. And it just says they came and fought with Israel. The ESV simply reads Amalek, that Amalek came and fought with Israel. That's the actual Hebrew word being used here, Amalek. But um, Moses is not talking about just one person, but everyone who descended from Amalek. So who in the world is this father of so many desert pirates? Well, Amalek was the grandson of Esau. Perhaps you're already familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau in the book of Genesis. Jacob deceived his blind father by dressing up as his older brother Esau so that he could steal the firstborn blessing. Well, you can imagine that doesn't go well. That begins years of feuding. Ultimately, they do reconcile. We see that in Genesis 33. But now, hundreds of years later, here in Exodus 17, we have the grandkids of Esau, the Amalekites, fighting in the desert with the grandchildren of Jacob, the Israelites. And in fact, these distant cousins will war well into the unfolding narrative of the Old Testament. The Amalekites were a nomadic people who traveled this region of the wilderness. We're not told why they decide to wage war on Israel. Perhaps they thought that Um, Israel was a threat to their unpredictable uh, food and water supplies. We've already seen that, right, a few chapters ago. Maybe they're just being territorial toward this massive migration of people traveling on their highway. Either way, this attack is unprovoked and flat-out unethical. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17 through 19, give us a little more of the detail of how this attack happens. The Amalekites don't even attack Israel head on, but from behind by picking out people who were in the back of the pack. Well, who would that have been? On a caravan of a million plus people going through the desert, who's straggling behind? The elderly, the sick, people with young children. These were ruthless people, the Amalekites. This is not a friendly introduction. But now we know who the Amalekites are. We're also introduced to two other characters in the story as Israel prepares to defend itself from war. Joshua and Hur, that's H-U-R, not H-E-R. Hur, a masculine name. Verse 9 contains um, the first time Joshua is mentioned in Scripture, but we know it will not be the last. Joshua follows Moses as the leader of Israel, and will in fact be the one to lead them into the promised land. Moses wastes no words telling us who Joshua is, either because his original hearers already were so familiar with him, or because he's going to spill a lot of ink in future uh, books telling the tale of what Joshua is and his military exploits. For now, I want you to remember that Joshua's marching orders are to gather an army and to lead them onto the battlefield. That's Joshua's role. In the meanwhile, and these offices are significant, Moses, the prophet of God, his brother Aaron, who would begin the entire priesthood of God, and then this man called Hur, who we know from later in the book of Exodus, comes from the kingly line of Judah. So we have a prophet, a priest, and someone from the kingly line 
gathered on this hill and they're going to be overlooking the war. We don't know much else about this final man, but uh, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that her was married to Miriam, Moses' sister. We also know that he's the grandfather of Bezalel, who would serve later as the general contractor who built the tabernacle. So we'll see him later in the book of Exodus as well. Okay, so this is the list of characters that we need to know about as we move into this scene. The Amalekites have come to fight the Israelites. Moses gathers Aaron and Hur to join him on the hill. And then Joshua has gathered the army to war in the field below. Now, before we look at what happens in this scene on this ancient battleground, I want to push pause and remind us that every step of this journey has been ordained by God. And so God was not only sovereign when He delivered the people from slavery in Egypt. And God was not only good when He supernaturally provided for His people water from a rock. God was sovereign and good even when the path was marked by danger. The Lord led His people into hunger so they would hunger for Him. The Lord gave His people a thirst so they might thirst more for Him. Now He leads them into battle to teach them that they can trust in Him in all things. I thought about the old hymn, How Firm a Foundation, this week, where uh, the, the singer, the author of the hymn, puts like God's words in the mouth of the singer, and he says, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Well, here's just a little um, visible example of, I think, what that hymn is getting at. The Lord of every step was the one who had led them there, not to injure them, but to teach them to experience His supernatural care that would be with them through the battle. So, I don't know what fiery trial you are walking through right now. And I don't know what unprovoked war has knocked on your door. But I know that the Lord of every step will be with you in it. He will be with you in it. And every winding of the pathway that our sovereign good God has ordained, you will find His grace to be sufficient for what you face. How do we know that? Because His grace is all sufficient. And in suffering, we learn that to be true. So for now, you can trust that the Lord of every step is with His people at every step. Next, we see that God is the Lord of every battle, verses 11 through 13. Now, Eugene Peterson wrote that beginnings get things started, but what comes next makes the story. As we explore what comes next, what makes this story is the focus of the passage. That's what's most important. We've got to see this. The focus needs to be in our focus. 
That was for free. It is fascinating how Scripture is um, completely uninterested in giving us any details on the size of the armies or the tactics of the fight or what happens on the battlefield. The focus is not on the battle at all, but what's happening on the hill. And that man up there with his arms stretched wide to heaven. What the Lord wanted to teach His people was not to focus on the dangers of the battlefield, but to keep their eyes on the Lord of the battle. Verse 11 tells us, Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek did. So as Moses' hands are up, charge! Kids, you ready for that? That's pretty good, yeah? As his hands go down, retreat! That's what's happening here. Well, what war scene has ever looked like this? You've never seen a movie where this is happening. What's so significant about the raising and lowering of Moses' hand? Well, the answer is not found by looking at his hand, but what is in his hand. Moses holds in his hand the staff, or in Hebrew, it's literally the rod of God. As we think about these like past chapters, what we've seen, of course, this makes perfect sense. It was the rod that struck the Nile River, turning it from flourishing healthy water to blood. It was the rod that struck that rock and caused it to flow water from nowhere, from itself, full supply for God's people. Now, the staff is the visible sign of the protection and provision and providence of Yahweh. The staff is lifted in the air. Now, scholars have tried to determine what's going on with this, this stick. Is this like incantation? Absolutely not. Is this just like a coincidence? No. This is God at work in the lives of His people, His presence to them in this battle. However, in this battle, the Lord would work through Moses as He holds the staff in the air. And the Lord would work through Joshua as he and the men fight in the field below. This is the doctrine of concurrence. Okay? Concurrence. This is very important for us to understand. How does a sovereign God work in the world? Through things that he has made. How does God work in your life? Through your life. Here's the doctrine of concurrence. God working through Moses. God working through Joshua. Well, the drama of this scene peaks when Moses grows tired of holding up his arms all day. And as Moses recounts the story, I love how honest he is. Moses doesn't try to minimize his weakness or make excuses. Well, it was really hot in the desert sun. I forgot to carb load beforehand. No, he's just honest. Like, I'm, I couldn't do it. What's he showing us? That the arm of Moses is not as strong as the arm of the Lord. Moses is not the savior of the people. And at this moment, his friends, Aaron and her, surround him. They sit the old man down on a rock. And they stand side by side with him throughout the battle. This doesn't happen in five minutes. This is a whole day 
of them warring back and forth with the Amalekites. Moses' friends hold up his arms when he does not have the strength to do it himself. Ultimately, with a little help from these guys, his hands were steady, he says. The constancy of these guys in his life until the going down of the sun. Well, the battle scene ends as we read that Joshua disabled Amalek. And, and technically, in the Hebrew, when it says that he, he our text, that he overwhelmed them and his people with the sword, the literal translation is like the sword, the mouth of the sword just engulfs Amalek and his forces. All of Israel exhales. The Lord has saved them. They experience another sort of exodus as God brings them out of this war. Moses did his part. Hur did his part. Aaron did his part. Joshua played his role. But don't miss this fact. The Lord saved his people on this day. Every battle comes with lessons learned. Oh, there are lessons to be learned here. Both for Israel and for us. One lesson is that God's people are to always look to the Lord. To keep our eyes fixed on Him. The focus of this story is itself a vital lesson for the people of God. They're not to look at the size of the enemy. They'll get this wrong as they stand at the borders of Canaan. It'll cost them many more years. Not to focus on the size of the enemy and not to trust in the strength of their own resume, but to lift their eyes to the hills from where their help comes from. That is a vital lesson for us, to look continually to the Lord of the battle, to the God who had delivered them from the chains of slavery. Why? Because He is the same God who gives them this first victory. And there would be many victories to come, and many defeats as well. And in each battle, the Lord would continue to instruct them and correct them, teaching them to look to Him alone for their salvation. Well, what can we pull away from this just this ancient battle? Well, do you and I have any enemy that we fight every day? The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12, we, he's talking about Christians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what is our battle? Our battle is against the world. Our battle is against the flesh. Our battle is against the devil. To fight against these things, to fight uh, indwelling sin to take up arms like we see Joshua doing and to fight not on our own strength but in the strength of the Lord looking to him and we would do well not to focus our attention on the enemy we face but on the man on the hill with his arms stretched wide to heaven to look to Christ who is the fulfillment of the prophet and the priest and I think that's the first lesson. Another lesson we learn, and I'll use the words of J.I. Packer, weakness is the way. Weakness is the way. Even mighty Moses 
was unable to hold up his arms and deliver the people alone. At the Red Sea, the Lord saved his people through his mighty hand. Now, God will continue to work through the hand of his prophet Moses, and later through kings, and then through prophets, but they would, none of them would have the strength of God. And here, Moses doesn't pretend to have enough strength. And I think we have a lot to learn from this. If we're not careful, we can suppose that a mark of a mature Christian is one who is strong all the time. One who cannot demonstrate weakness. When in reality, even Paul writes about this, it's the opposite that is true. It's in our weakness that Christ is strong. Jim Packer in another book says this, very late in his life, when he's losing his eyes and use of his hands, he says, felt weakness deepens dependence on Christ for strength each day. The weaker we feel, the harder we lean. He's talking about leaning on Christ. The weaker we feel, the harder we lean. And the harder we lean, the stronger we grow spiritually. Well, I pray that as a church family, we would lean completely on Christ as our strength and forsake trying to trust in ourselves to be strong enough. And I pray that for you and people that follow us, that we would not feel the need to wear masks of strength with one another, where it's okay to be broken at times, to be shattered at times, to be weak, and not hide that from one another. We don't have to hide that. I would just say, as your pastor, I'm thankful you don't require that of me because I'm weak. And I want to lean on Christ for strength. So let's continue to build a culture. How does that happen? Well, not by accident. It takes us just leading out of that, saying we're not strong enough. We don't have all the answers, but we know who does. And so we'll keep our Bibles open and keep pursuing Christ together. And in, in your weakness, we'll get to this in just a moment. I'll be strong for you. So the final lesson here is that there is strength in community. Thank God we don't go at this our own. In the beginning of Exodus 17, the Israelites were fighting each other. They were at each other's throats. Quarreling is the word Moses used. Testing God. What are they doing now? Standing as a united people with a common enemy. Joshua needed men to stand side by side with him in battle. Moses needed his friends to shoulder to shoulder with him on the hill. Why? Because no one is meant to do this alone. We see all of the people of God participating together. One of the values we have for the members of the trails is that we would intentionally know other people and be known by other people. So that why? We could together see the Lord move powerfully in our lives. And when uh, you're weak, I can come into your suffering and into your weakness and be strong for you. And when I'm weak, you can do that for me. This is how the body of Christ is meant to function as a body. And when we live like this, there is health. 
So guys, have men that know you and what you're struggling with. And in your weakness can come alongside. Sisters, have a woman in your life who when you're struggling can step into that with you. Who holds your arms up when you cannot do it on your own? Who does that for you? Who stands side by side with you in this spiritual battle that we fight every day? So as we stand in our weakness, let us stand together. Keep our eyes fixed, upheld by the Lord of the battle. And finally, we will learn that God is the Lord of every victory. As the sun went down, marking another day of God's faithfulness, the Israelites stood victorious in their first battle. Moses, with a little help from his God and his friends, held up the staff as he was commanded. Joshua and the army held their ground, and the Lord of the battle was the Lord of victory. There are two themes that develop in these final verses, both starting with the letter W. Proof that Moses was a Baptist. (laughs) Writing and worship. Writing and worship. We all know there needs to be a third one, but there's just two. Writing and worship. The Lord tells Moses to write down what God had done that day in, your Bible probably says, a book. But in Hebrew, there's a definite article in front of that word book. Those of you who remember English, definite article, the. Yeah, the, the would be proper. Text is just the. So it's not just write it down in any book. Write it in the book. Moses, what I did, write it in the book. Well, this is proof. This is evidence that there was already this practice of what God had done was then written down so that they wouldn't forget. Chronicling the salvation in the ways of God, both in their life and to pass down from generation to come. Old Moses is to write down a memorial and pass down to young Joshua. He's supposed to whisper it in Joshua's ear and recite and tell the story of the power of God. What does this show us? The importance of one generation commending to the next the mighty works of God. And I love the juxtaposition of these two words, blot out and write down. Those are opposites. To write down something and to blot it out would mean the thing you wrote down is gone, but not with the Lord. So here, he tells Moses, he wants him to write this down because he's going to blot out the memory of the Amalekites. So he writes it down in the eternal word of God that will never change. So even in the life to come, we will see the name of the Amalekites. So what does God have in mind here? Well, the Amalekites would not be blotted out of existence that day in the desert. But one day, God would blot out the Amalekites from the face of the earth once and for all. Kids, you want a little homework over spring break? Yes, you do. Read the book of Esther this week. That's the last time you ever hear of the Amalekites in the Bible. Once and for all, God blots them out of this world. For now, there's an interesting thing that happens at the end of this text that has perplexed scholars a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. That phrase, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, is what's so troubling. But I think what's happening here is just this, the Lord's showing the, uh, just like Pharaoh, who is the Lord that I would obey him? 
Amalek raises his hand against God. Why I think that is notice this uh, where we began and where we end. The story began with Amalek at war with God's people, yet we end with God at war with Amalek. So writing it down. The other theme is one of worship. The fact that Moses builds an altar in worship unto God is no small detail. Throughout the book of Genesis, when God does remarkable, salvific things, when God speaks, which is a wonderfully remarkable thing, uh, our first fathers stopped what they were doing and built altars. Noah does this after God delivers them through the flood. Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob all do this through the book of Genesis when God makes covenant with them. They stop and build an altar. Well, this day, long ago in the wilderness, after God delivered his people from their enemies, Moses does what his fathers before him did, built an altar. And then he names it. The Lord is my banner. Well, that's a wonderful phrase. What does it mean? What does it mean that the Lord is His banner? Notice how personal that is. Well, the banner in mind here is a signal flag. It's raised in battle at a high place, like on the top of a hill, so that it can be seen by everybody. And what that banner does is remind the people fighting who they are. It's a sense of identity. This is who we are. We are the people, in this case, we are the people of God. We are the people of Yahweh. So it reminded them who they are. And it also told them what they were fighting for. They weren't just fighting for their own glory. They were defending what God was doing, the great story that God was writing. The banner helps give unity to the people fighting. It's an object of their focus. It was the hope of the people. So Moses worships the Lord, who is the one who protected his people. The Lord, who is high and lifted up. The one who is exalted, who is the victor of the battle. I asked you earlier, what battles have you fought that have taught you to remember the Lord? If you were to write down the ways the Lord has rescued you and delivered you through battles, what would you write about? Or to even back up the question a little bit, can you say the Lord is my banner? Can you say those words? Last week, same chapter, Moses warned the people, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. There's only one way to stand under the banner of the Lord, and that is in and through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the way and the truth and the life, and there's no other way to the Father except through him. So if today you walked into this room with no banner over your life of salvation, today, by faith in Christ, by repentance of your sin, you can walk out with the protection of God over your life. And that comes only through Jesus. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but trust in the Lord. And to all of us who are in Christ, Because of Christ, you can say this phrase. The Lord is my banner. 
The Lord is the one who directs my steps. The Lord is the one who fights battles for me, including the greatest battle, the one that brought me salvation. On the cross, it was the man on the hill, the prophet, the priest, the king, who mediated the victory of my salvation. Christ was lifted up so that I might draw near to God. Through his perfect death, I might find life. And Christ alone defeated your ancient enemies, Satan and death and sin. He is the Lord of victory. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name. From age to age, the same. And he must win the battle. So we've seen Yahweh once again provide for and protect his people with his guiding presence with every step, including in this battle. The story is recorded in Holy Scripture, passed down from generation to generation, so that you and I might remember the Lord. And so today we lift our eyes to him. And by faith, Join in the words of Moses in saying, the Lord is my banner. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that that can be true. Thank you that that is true. I pray for those of us who feel weakened in our faith right now. Those who are standing in um, the middle of a battle. Lord, our tendency is to focus on all the details of what we're enduring, to take our eyes off of you. I pray you'd give us the grace to look up. Pray for those who are walking through challenging times and trials alone right now. You'd give them the grace to just raise their hand and say, I need help. I can't hold my arms up anymore. And help us as a church family to come alongside and lovingly lift the burden and arms of another. We thank you for the many times that's been us in that position and we've been cared for by you through your people. We thank you for Christ who is the Lord of every step, the Lord of every battle, the Lord of every victory. In his name we pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.